Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So the topic, as Darren mentioned, um, is uh, uh, kind of Sabbath. Uh, my problem was is that I went to the text that I, we had agreed we would look at this morning. And while they do talk about Sabbath, they also talk about some other things that I'd prefer not to talk about, uh, which means that I need to talk about them, uh, <laughs> it, it, mostly to myself. Uh, so you're welcome to listen in, if you will. Um, but Jesus... Um, obviously said some profound and meaningful things and invited us into his life. But the way the gospel unfolds often, some of the ways that we learn the way of Jesus is by paying attention to who annoyed him. <laughs> paying attention to what he got angry about. Paying attention to, to the, 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 the frustrating folks. And, and I find myself... Um, on the wrong side of those stories often. You, you know what I mean? When Jesus tells stories, parables, which is what we'll look at this morning, uh, and then a couple of living examples, um, I, I find myself on, on Jesus' side at, at those people. And we all know who those people are, right? Only to discover that, in fact, it's mostly about me and my journey with him. So um, that's what happened to me this week in working on this text, and, and I didn't have time to generate another sermon, so here we go. Um, <laughs> Luke chapter 5, the framing uh, story, because particularly the, the foil for Jesus' anger in the Gospels is often some of the Pharisees. Please notice, not all of the Pharisees, but some of them. Uh, who were anxious and concerned about some very specific things. The Pharisees were a party that arose in the intertestamental period, uh, largely out of uh, Babylon and, and the exile in Babylon. They were viewed themselves and were viewed for the most part by their, by their culture as a, as a party of purity, not quite so radical as the Essene community, the Dead Sea Scrolls and those folks but really believing that the reason we had been put in prison in Babylon uh, was because we didn't observe Sabbath properly, uh, which echoes Jeremiah, who reminds the people that the reason they were in, Sab in, in, in exile in Babylon for the 70 years they were there is that God was requiring of them one year for each year they failed to give the land Sabbath. Remember, they were supposed to Sabbath the land one year and seventh. They were supposed to trust God in that seventh year that he would provide for them adequately, which he had been training them in through the 40 years in the desert and so on and so forth, that God would provide for them adequately in that seventh year and failure to do that for 400 and roughly 490 years. God says, I want a year back for each year you didn't Sabbath the land. So they were in exile for 70 years. This is one of the ways that we think through what happened there. So in that, seeing that reality, the Pharisees and others come up with the conclusion that God cares a whole lot about Sabbath, way more than we do. We need to pay very close attention to that. And so they devised 
numerous strategies for making sure that we never did that again, keeping Sabbath properly and well and, and so on, which is wonderful. Pharisees also paid a lot of attention to holiness codes, which is why they're always on Jesus about who he ate with and, and where he went and who he hung out with, because you know that uncleanness attaches to you. Uh, and, and will contaminate your capacity to, to, to worship and so on and so forth, which will then delay the coming of Messiah. What they hadn't conned on, that when Messiah comes, His holiness is what will cling to you. His holiness is what will transfer, and in His presence, uncleanness becomes clean. Hadn't counted on that. Nobody wrote the book on that just yet. And the biggest barrier to our new knowledge of God is our old knowledge of God. Where we have been successful, when we've encountered God, when we've met Him in some significant way, that often becomes the standard now by which we evaluate not only our spiritual journey, but everybody else's as well. Does that make sense? Um, so that so that we after how many of us have found ourselves, especially if if you you've been you know, on the journey with Jesus for a little while, and 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 at some points have had significant experiences. Those not only are the high watermark; those now become the markers and the measures by which you evaluate any subsequent spiritual experience. Right. So God's over here trying to do a new thing. And we're saying, no, I want you to do the old thing so I'll know it's really you. That's the spirit of the Pharisee. And that's the seed that is in us all. Especially the disdain, especially the look down our nose at, especially the evaluation of others whose experience of God's new is different than our experience of God's new now has become old. You with me? So Jesus is very aware of this, and while I do want to talk about the necessity of Sabbath, Jesus uses Sabbath as a marker of what happens when you make a gift of God an idol. What happens when instead of taking advantage of Sabbath to restore your soul, you now make it a measure of what God expects and demands. So here's, here's, the, here's the frame. It's Luke chapter 5, verse 36. Um, and, and it begins with this brief statement that we'll look at at the end. He told them this parable. A bunch of stuff going on here before this. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, he will have both torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And of course, when you wash it, it'll wreck both of them, right? No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine has to be poured into new wineskins. Listen to this, this verse, because it sets the frame for what's next. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, because they say the old is better. Okay? Here's the story that follows. One Sabbath, Jesus is going through the grain fields. His disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them into their hands, eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
Jesus answered them, Well, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He took the consecrated bread. He ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. He gave also some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue. He was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is more lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. His hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why? Because he was trying to pour new wine into new wineskins, and everybody in the room said, but the old is better. Right? So that's the frame. Let's go back to the very first one. Uh, and, uh, this, this, the, and, and remember, Jesus is not original here. He is not saying um, anything other than what people already knew to be true. So this is a common understanding. Uh, and in fact, we, we have sayings like this in our culture, don't we? Uh, and, and so uh, no one tears a, a piece out of a new garment uh, to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment. The patch from the new will not match the old. You don't, you don't simply take what is new and attach it to the old and expect it all to be good to go. Right? And the next one is even more telling. Nobody uh, pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, a new wine will burst the skins. And you know the, the science and the culture here. The wine needs to ferment. And when it ferments, it releases uh, carbon dioxide. And when that carbon dioxide spreads into the, into the goat skins, typically into which the wine has been put to age and to store, it, it, if, if there's not flexibility, which is only available to the new, Right? Sooner or later, that carbon dioxide is going to break open the old wineskins, and, and, and the wineskin and the wine will be ruined. This is a truism that Jesus is simply making the observation. But notice how he turns it here. It's not just that new wine has to be put into new wineskins, that's true. We need new structures. We need new ways of doing things to enable us to embrace and accept the new. The old will always struggle with the new because it recognizes that the new will break the old. And if you have your spirituality attached to the old, if you have your comfort zone, and especially if you have moved into positions of power in the old, the new will be a persistent, consistent threat to you. This is true politically, it's true socially, it's true in family systems, right? If you have anchored your identity to a way of doing things that you have then mastered to the point of becoming an expert, a position of power, 
And we could, we could work this in, in, in numerous ways, but I, I, does that all make sense? Right? So you, you, just a tiny little thing that Jesus finally comes to the conclusion that and, and the old, every one of us says the old is better. How long does it take for something to have become old to us? One time. One time. And that's the new tradition. That's what we're familiar with. That's the way we've always done it. Right? Because I, I, I used to, when I was a youth pastor, I, I was a youth pastor for about 10 years, and, and I thought that all of the Pharisees were old people. <laughs> and they were getting in the way of the new that us hip people were, were, were doing, right? And then I discovered with every youth group that I ever pastored that it did not take but one time for us to become the new Pharisees. For us to begin, for I set up the chairs wrong one Sunday in a circle. Yes, this was the 70s. Before that, we didn't set chairs up in a circle because God couldn't move unless chairs were in a row. We set them up in a circle. We had to look at each other for the first time. And the youth group that we were pastoring at the time had not been used to that. They came in and you could see them. And it's, it's like you all here have a tradition. You all sit within two or three spaces of where you sit every Sunday. And if some new person comes in, you look at them, you know in your heart you're supposed to be kind and generous, inviting and welcoming, but you know also in your heart there is the sense of, don't you know who I am? I sat there last week. You are in my place. That's what Jesus is saying. Now you, I mean, it's silly to talk about, you know, youth group seating arrangements and chairs, except how much of what we make points of division start off just like that. Silly things. And it's not that Sabbath is silly. Jesus is not saying that when he goes into this next story. It's that when you start to worship your way of doing things, it quickly goes sideways because that then you make a marker of judgment of your brother, your sister. We all have the seed of the Pharisee in us. And please notice, what gets lost is the gift of the Sabbath. What gets lost is what God intended to sustain us. What gets lost is the capacity for community. Does that resonate, right? So as he goes through here, no one says after drinking the new wine, uh, after drinking the old wine, no one wants the new because the old is better. The old is better. The old is better. And remember, it only takes one or two times for the old to become the old. It will not take long before whatever worship style we're currently in becomes the old that is the marker of our meeting with God. I, as a worship leader, I led worship for about 25 years. I, I knew the song set, the set list that I could generate that would move people emotionally in the 70s. Right? And it included stuff by Gaither. Yes. Yes. For 
For some of you, I'm speaking in tongues now. You'll have the interpretation. <laughs> right? And then we moved into the 80s, and, and now all of a sudden it's Don Moen and Integrity Hosanna and stuff like that. Nobody knows what I'm talking about now. <laughs> and in the same way that you all will quickly, wherever you came into the journey, will quickly become the old that is better at, than whatever the new is. And God help you, and God help the church, and God help the new ones who are coming in, if you, with your understanding of the old, whatever that is, is better, are in a position of power when the new ones come in. Because rather than use your position of power, whatever that is, and don't misunderstand me, but you, you know what I mean, leadership role, teaching role, whatever it is, you will make, if you're not careful, instead of that position being used to empower, to lift, to include, to make way, you will use it to keep down. You will use it to treat others with disdain. You will use it to make, just subtle, just subtle, but you know how we do it. We wink, wink, nod, nod. Judgments about brothers and sisters that you have no business making those judgments about. How do I know this? Because I do it. I do it. Do, do, do you know? I do it. And so Jesus is, is, he gets this. He gets this. And so here he is. He, I love how he does this. He, Jesus didn't intend to blow the tradition apart. But he doesn't mind if the tradition gets blown apart. Do, do you see what I mean? So here they are walking through the, 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 the uh, whatever that thing is with grain. Fields. There we are. So the grain fields right there. It says there. Right there is where they were walking through that. Began to say, and here's, here's the guys. You know, they got to, that. Maybe they're just right on the edge of hangry. So they're, 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 they're grabbing stuff and rubbing it, you know, and just popping the, the raw grain in. And if you've ever done that, you've got to know. You've got to be pretty hungry to do that. So they were doing this. And of course, now Jesus didn't say, let's find a strategic grain field. Let's make sure we have an audience. Okay, guys, now. He didn't, he didn't set this up. It happened. Which, by the way, is one of the things I love and hate so much about Jesus is that nothing, including the ordinary everyday stuff, gets wasted. Pay attention, because every bush is burning. Every moment is filled with the inbreaking of God for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Right? So here the guy's saying, guys are just grabbing stuff. The disciples are clueless. They're fishermen for crying out loud. They're not clued in to the, to the finer necessities of religious observance. And Jesus maybe is doing this strategically. We don't know. I'm thinking not. It just happens. And the Pharisees, who by the way, are highly regarded. We've said this before. It's really important. The Pharisees are not treated with disdain by the culture. They're highly regarded. These are people that you would want to serve in leadership roles in your church, on your board. These are the people that you would count on because they're going to help you know God better. And, and they see this happening and they're trying to figure out, this is still early in Jesus' ministry. They're still trying to figure out who this guy is. And, and, and where does he fit into our pigeonhole of righteousness? 
And so the question is raised, why are you doing what is unlawful on Sabbath? What were they doing? They were working. How were they working? They were harvesting. Harvesting is one of the types of work that is prohib- prohibited under Sabbath law. So they were, they were, it was a handful. Does that count as a harvest? Well, it depends on, on, on how particular you want to get about law keeping, about rule keeping. And the Pharisees really thought that God was of such a kind, like they were, for whom one grain of wheat could constitute a harvest. And even though they wouldn't fit it into the classical category of harvesting, i.e. With the, with the work parties and so on and so forth, it's just a handful, why risk it? So let's build a fence that protects us from the possible violation of the law, do you see? So that we don't get close to the edge and run the risk of Messiah's not returning because we're violating Sabbath. The logic is impeccable. How many of you have employed similar kinds of logic to justify your own kinds of crazy? <laughs> just, just me and Zach. Okay, well, that's the way it, it works, I guess. <laughs> right? But, but so, so and, and <laughs> harvest, breaking the law. What are you doing? Why are you breaking? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he goes on and, and, and comes, comes to this next thing. Have you never read... And, and if you'd follow Jesus around for a while, you know when he starts like this, it's best just to walk away. Because <laughs> you're going down. <laughs> Have you never read? And of course, who is he speaking to? So already the, the bring it on moment has occurred, <laughs> right? Uh, David, David and his companions were hungry and he's echoing a story in the Old Testament obviously enter the house of God and it wasn't about Sabbath but it was about bread which is what happens when you harvest and, right David didn't just eat Sabbath bread he ate consecrated bread that was devoted only to the priests why did he eat it because he was hungry who gave it to him Abiathar the priest gave it to him and not only that David you could perhaps excuse him because he's after all the anointed of God the king of Israel Maybe it would be okay for him to eat consecrated bread, but certainly not when he gave it to his companions. I was crossing the line. Now, you guys revere David, right? Do you see what he's done? He's got them in the box canyon of their own self-understanding. Is bread for eating or for show? Yeah? So he goes, and, and then he makes this outrageous statement. The son of man, his favorite designation for himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, those are fighting words. Right? Now, you know here, now Jesus is, is calling them out. Because they viewed themselves as the arbiters of Sabbath. And when he makes this statement, he's saying, at the end of the day, we have to decide. I, I am making a claim here that I get to determine what's Sabbath keeping and what isn't. So, the, yeah, anybody starting to understand why they killed him? Because he does this with you and me all the time, too, doesn't he? He does it. So, the next time, another Sabbath down the road, 
he went into the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there with a right hand, who, which was shriveled. And Luke, of course, a physician, notices these things. This is a, one that appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. And um, it, depending on how you understand this, this man probably ought not to have been there in the first place. Because persons with disabilities of one kind or another were not typically permitted first in temple. And one of the strict sects said, therefore, not in synagogue either. And of course, the strict sect were most concerned about things like Sabbath. So how did this guy get there? And Mark, at least in his version, at least hints at the possibility that it was a setup that he was an import, that he was there specifically to test Jesus. This seems to be the way the rest of the story unfolds, right? He was there with his right hand, teachers of the law were there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now there's a test for you. Will he be kind, generous, and compassionate? Will he be true to his nature? I love the fact that the Pharisees already knew Jesus well enough to know that he could not avoid his compassion. And now they're using it to try and trap him. Because clearly Sabbath trumps compassion. Right? If it, if it involves work of some kind, which is prohibited, do you see? So, watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus, of course, is on to them. Not because he's God, but because he's smart. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. We have cheese. This must be a trap. Who's in the room? Oh, I recognize those old familiar faces. You with me? Get up. And stand in front of everyone, he said to this man who had made it a lifetime habit of not being seen. Because in that culture, as like ours, people with disabilities of one kind or another are the disappeared. Jesus invites him to stand front and center. So he got up and stood there. Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And he's making a classic rabbinic argument. If you have the ability to do good and don't do it, it's the same as doing evil. You guys are experts. If an ox falls in the ditch, he will argue it in another place. You will violate Sabbath to save the ox. Here is a man. Is it lawful on, on your understanding of Sabbath, your old is better, to restrict access to the healing power of God so that you can be religiously right? And of course, we're on the side of God and the angels, so we know the answer to that question. And he looked around at them all. Mark's gospel makes it clear that he was very angry. The strongest word Mark 
uses to describe anger is how Jesus looked at these guys. So tied to their self-righteous understanding of their own rule-keeping that they could not, they, they, they could not bring themselves to step outside of their old, which was better, to the new that God might want to do. His hand was completely restored. Now, I love this. How did that happen? Did Jesus touch him? No. There was no, as far as we can tell, there was no physical contact. It was shriveled, clean. Shriveled, whole. Shriveled, healed. Who healed him? Who did the work? Who gets to be Lord of Sabbath? Your turn. Do, do you see what he's doing? And of course, the Pharisees are not stupid people. They recognize what he's doing as well. And they now become, instead of grateful, furious. Now, I wish I could talk more explicitly about Sabbath, because one of the problems with us in our new conceit is that we no longer need Sabbath rest. That Jesus died on the cross so we can work 24-7. And instead of Jesus himself becoming our rest, into which we enter on a regular basis through regular Sabbath observance, receiving the gift of God as a primary way of caring for ourselves, we completely ignore it and wonder why we're exhausted, weary, worn, and sad. Notice what it is that Jesus invites us to. John, Darren talked about this a couple of three weeks ago. If you're weary, worn, sad, what do you do? Come to me and I will give you rest. So we're going to start over again. We're going to restore Sabbath to your soul. It is out of that rest that I intend you to live. Rest is not something towards which you work. Rest is something out of which you live. This is Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? God speaks creation into being. Then the beginning of chapter 2, he rests. Not because he's weary, but as a model for us, as a marker for us, as a way of timekeeping for us. And out of that seventh day comes the new day, the eighth day of creation. So on the foundation of Sabbath, the work of the rest of life occurs. Rest is found, it's not destiny, it's foundation. You, you with me? So, so Jesus, and, and of course, as we work through the Old Testament, we see this echoed in the 10 words, right? We see this echoed where, where, where we have the first three, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We have, have the, 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 the last, almost, except for the 10th one, the five, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, et cetera, et cetera. Those are ways of loving our neighbors, ourselves. Then there are two. I used to think it was one, but I'm rethinking this, so help me out. But it seems to me there are two that help us to love ourselves well. Guess what they are? Number four, keep Sabbath holy. This is a gift. Receive it. And, and treat the old people well. Because if you don't have a past, celebrate it in the old, 
your future is at risk. Do, do you see what he's doing? Then, and then the 10th one is how we enter into the breaking of the others. Am I, am I feeling scattered? Is everybody tracking with me? You okay? Okay, good. Um, so what is he inviting us into? He's inviting us to properly regard the new rest that God is giving us in him and our old ways of keeping Sabbath are blocking us from the new ways that God might want to give us rest in him. We keep the rules, we keep the regulations. If you grew up as I did, you know that Sunday, and, and I grew up in the church, you know that Sunday afternoon was, was the dead zone because everything might possibly be work. Right? And it was, it was miserable. That was not the kind of Sabbath that we were invited into. Jesus wants Sabbath, I think, to be about family, to be about wholeness, about the kingdom, about, but it doesn't want it to be about work because then we might think we're generating it. We might think we're doing it. So, so as, as, we, as we sit with this, um, we, want to, we want to think through. The Jewish writers on Sabbath said, while the Jews kept the Sabbath, it was in fact the Sabbath that kept the Jews. It is what enabled them to maintain identity. And so you can understand why it became a, a focal point for them. And how easy it is for our traditions, our ways of doing things, to to. to uh, become the new idols that we have. And Jesus is saying, do you trust the new? So much so that you're willing to set aside your old, your traditions and let them be invigorated again from the, from the, from the center. And this is especially the case for those on the margins. Especially for the case for the, for the odd ones out especially the case for the people that don't quite fit in with all of us. It's, it's, it's the them, us thing again. And Jesus is saying, you don't get to make thems based on your old ways of doing things. Of course the church needs to change when new people come in with gifts and talents and abilities and disabilities, whatever language you want to use. I know that's not probably the appropriate way to speak of that. But let's, let's be clear. If the church can't embrace the anomalies, it will die as the church. It will still persist as an organization charged with the keeping up of traditions, of religious traditions. So we all have the seed of the Pharisee and this thing that, that Jesus uh, says the Father intended, he now is Lord of the Sabbath, he gets to define this, that God intended to, re to give us his gift for restoration, a reconnection with God, a reconnection with self and with others, a reminder of dependence, a platform, all of this is true of Sabbath. That's what it's intended to be. I don't think the best way to understand these parables is to say we don't need Sabbath at all. I think the best way to understand this is Jesus, teach me how to Sabbath well. Teach me how to rest well. Teach me the rhythms of rest that I need as foundation for my life in you. Otherwise, I will simply inherit, import the ways of the world, whatever that means to you, into the ways of the kingdom. And I will keep trying to do kingdom work the ways I learned there. That's not going to be helpful either. This 
this seed of the Pharisee uh, in, in us, with, with, especially if we move into positions of authority, uh, tends to produce what I think Paul would call the empty conceit of superiority. And it, it's not about old. Uh, I've discovered that the young are as conceited as the old. Because we all think our way of doing things is the right way. And then we baptize that. This is not only the right way, it's God's way. Right? And we are invited instead to set aside that disdain, to set aside that judgment, to set aside the ways by which we evaluate others, to set aside our arrogance and say, Jesus, make me new for the new that you want to do. We need to be ready. We need to be quick. And especially for those of us who are, are older, can I just say, devote the last half, the last third of your life to making way for the next. Don't die till you're dead. You, do you know? Keep learning. Keep stretching. Keep reaching. Jesus' first miracle was to produce 150 gallons of wine. There's enough new for those who will be made new. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.